Welcome to the Music Relish Podcast with Perry Dedovich, Mark Smith, and Lou Colicchio. <laughs> the Music Relish Podcast. <laughs> Hey, that's jazzy, man. That's jazzy. Good evening. Now, gonna make some noise. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Music Relish Podcast. And uh, as Lou just stated in the song, my name is Perry, and we're here with Lou and Mark. Hey there, guys, and hey, Lou Kalicki. Oh, oh. (laughs) Howdy, howdy. Lou, that was a great theme. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm a jingle writer now. All right, you, you, you are. <laughs> you work with the Beach Boys. <laughs> Candy bars, uh, anything. Shampoo. Well, so, so, you know, how, how about tonight? I, I thought we'd talk about Paul Simon as a songwriter. Okay. That's okay with everyone, right? Yeah, sure. yeah. And also uh, Jimmy Page as a session guitar player. Mm-hmm. And, and any other random subjects we want to throw in there? Cool. We've got a lot of time to uh, a lot of time to kill. So, uh, anybody want to start off with Paul Simon? Um, well, I, I've been away for a while, so I'm going to coast and just listen to you guys. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> I got nothing. Um, yes, yeah, sure Paul, you do. Paul Simon, you know, I, he's a great songwriter. Obviously, I mean, he's he's a legend, a classic, and a, he's one of those guys. I always wonder, like, they, they wrote so mature, so young. Yeah, good I mean, point. I mean, the music. Hello, twenty-two years old. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, you know, I, I have a personal Paul Simon story, actually. Ooh, let's hear it. Uh, well, it's kind of weird. Um, some so night. <laughs> well, well, here. Okay, well, here goes. All right, let it all let it all hang out. So one night in, I think it was, it was uh, New York City, uh, late eighties, mid to late eighties. I'm saying eighty-seven, eighty-eight. I actually urinated on Paul Simon's face in Greenwich Village. <laughs> what? What? Well, hold on, hold on. Yeah. How did this come to be? I mean, there has to be a, now a you got, story yeah. about how it came to be. <laughs> you guys are my friends, you know, so. And, yeah, uh, so no one's listening, Lou. He's not that strange a guy. Anyway. I, I, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so one day, one night, you know, very, you remember my, my sister, Karen? I do. Uh, so Karen, her boyfriend, Tony, my brother, Anthony, and myself. And I think Anthony's girlfriend, Melissa, all went to New York City uh, to Karen's new favorite blues bar. It was a place called Automatic Slims. And well, I'm wondering if that was from, taken from the song Wang Dang Doodle. I think that's the, the term Automatic Slim is used in that song. But anyway, it was a pretty cool place. And I'm like, I got go to go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom. All right, here we go. I go to the bathroom and I lift, yeah. up, the toilet, I lift up the toilet seat and there's a laminated picture of Paul Simon and it says piss on <laughs> it says piss on Paul Simon so I did I, I peed right on his face <laughs> so he was considered to be uncool I guess in, uh... I, I, yeah I would gather I guess in, in that club alone I guess you know maybe uh, it might have been a reaction to Graceland I, I don't know well I, you know some people would say it's a guilty pleasure or whatever but I, you know with these songs that this guy has written I, it can't be a guilty pleasure. I mean, these. Oh hell no, hell no. You, Mark, you guys remember hearing these things on the radio as a kid, Mrs. Robinson, right? And, oh, oh yeah. my! My generation was Kodachrome. I had that forty-five. Kodachrome. 
I love that song. Yeah. Um, I love that song. Now, is, is Kodachrome, that, that's Paul Simon and, uh, solo. That's right? Paul Simon solo. Yeah. Right. Just like I mean Julio down by the schoolyard. Uh, I, that's another one I love. Yeah. yeah. That, that period, uh, Mother Child Reunion, that's like all within the same time. Frame. Oh, yeah. 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 And if you notice, he, you know, he, he was always an early pioneer of, um, of ethnic music. Absolutely. He, he, world music. Yeah. Right? World music. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't do Tarantellas, did he? He didn't do. <laughs> Do I, I love those songs. I love yeah. those songs. Absolutely. And um, uh, me and Julio down by the schoolyard. And what, what I love, what I love about, what I love about Wikipedia is you can just click on the song, right? Yeah. Like here, Mrs. Robinson, right? I click on Mrs. Robinson and then you go to where it says personnel. It tells you everybody who played on the record. Paul okay. Simon, Hal, Hal Blaine played drums and congas. Okay, even on the solo stuff. On Mrs. Robinson and Larry Neckel played the bass. Wow. That's also Hal Blaine on um, the Bach, on, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And that's Simon Garfunkel, but he played on a lot of that stuff. Uh, it might be him on the Boxer as well. Really? Yep. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to investigate that. But we could do we could do five five episodes on Hal Blaine alone, you know. L- listen to these songs. I mean, like Paul Simon are so obviously, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, we know, like, The Sounds of Silence, that's the one you had talked about with, with the producer. Uh, who was the producer? Uh, uh, was it Bob Johnson? No. What worked with them in the, uh, uh, you know, they added, he's the guy that added the electric instruments, wasn't it? Uh, 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 Tom Johnson, wait, Tom Johnson or Bob Johnson? Yeah, I think so, yeah, right? Yeah, we, the, we did. We, we talked about him at one point. I, I just yeah, yeah, him. he's the guy that decided to add the electric instruments, the guitar and everything to it, and it became a pop sensation. Right, smart idea. Yeah. So he he writes he writes the sound of silence. He writes Mrs. Robinson, America, America, yeah. Bridge over troubled water. The boxer. What's that one? El Condor Paso. I, I can always get that name mixed up. Now that he didn't write that, that's a cover. That's a Peruvian. And that's a traditional Peruvian song. That's a Peruvian song, and he got sued over that. By the way, did he really? He did. He got he got he sued from the family of the person that wrote it or something, and uh, wow. they discovered that the song was even older than the family thought. So I don't know what became of the lawsuit. I don't think anything came of it. Was was it a copyright infringement type thing where he didn't need uh, permission? Could be. Could be. Yeah. Well, you know a lot about copyrights, Perry, because we're blasting songs on this thing, and you know something. <laughs> I'm I'm doing it tonight. <laughs> I'm like, you can't beat him. I'm going to friggin' join him. You're not going to get in trouble for, you know, you're allowed to play 15, 19 seconds of a song. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, I mean, he, he's, uh, yeah. And um, even the solo, you're going into the 80s, the solo stuff. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Graceland stuff. I just don't, I don't know. It didn't do much for me, I guess. Um, but I mean, it, it, but, but there's no denying his songwriting, though. Even on things that I'm lukewarm to, I'm like, yeah, they're not bad songs. It's not bad music, whether it grabs your ear or not. That's how good he is. It's just... Yeah. I mean, um, still crazy after all these years. Now, when I, when I was younger, like, yeah, this is a little too mellow for me. Not, you if, you, not if you sing it in a chicken suit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Now, wasn't yeah. that great drummer you used to tell me about? Steve Gadd. Steve Gadd, right? Yeah, Steve Gadd. Yeah. Got got to see him play at a drum clinic. Wow. <laughs> Mark, how do you feel about Graceland? You know what? When it came out, I was in high school, 
And I had a really good friend. Me and him were the big Rush fans in school, and he was a big Prague guy. But he, Pete, he totally took to Graceland. He loved it, and I didn't get it. I just thought it was boring. Yeah. But I'd say it's oddly enough that we're talking about Paul Simon because, like, about six months ago, this is what I love about Spotify, that F program, Spotify. I just started listening to it. It's a great song. It's a, it really is a good album. I think it was all the hype that went around it. When something gets hyped too much, I, I kind of like back away. Yeah. Well, you're much more mature now, too, than you know, you can appreciate it now. I mean, it sold 14 million copies worldwide. And, and the musicianship, I mean, on Boy in the Bubble, that's Tony Levin on bass. But, yeah. um, you know, Lou, you mentioned the 80s Paul Simon and me. I have this horrible affliction of liking the albums that aren't popular. So when I was in school, I got his album Hearts and Bones out of the library. That was really the first time I listened to a whole Paul Simon album. And I just started listening to it again. That was a really good album. He's even mm-hmm. got Al Miola on one cut. Steve Gadd. Cool. Wow. He's got a great lineup. That's it. Lou, that's one worth checking out. Cool. Arts and Bones. I really like it. But it was cool. the last album before Graceland when he went into, you know, went to the stratosphere as far as popularity. I appreciate that he still puts out music. I really like that. That's something I, I he hasn't settled back into just doing the oldies. The guy still goes out. retired now. He's 80 years old. Yeah. 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 But, but a couple of years ago, he put an album out. I just like seeing that. You know, it's good to see he was still writing. He also, um, he played at some of the funerals. Uh, for the kids that were killed in the Sandy Hook uh, shooting, that that's oh. not far from where he lives. So he actually oh. played, yeah, he played at memorial services and things like that. Wow. Well, who's yeah. he married to now? Isn't he married to uh, Edie Brickell? Edie Brickell uh, from yeah. the New Bohemians. Yeah, I feel bad. I wish I never peed on him. I feel really bad now. <laughs> I, I always <laughs> like the song. <laughs> I always like the song. You can call me Al. That's from Graceland. That, that's really that's a Chevy. funny little song, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the video um, uh, with, with uh, Chevy Chase. Yeah, Chevy Chase is in it. Yeah, and um, is that the one? Which one mentions the Roly Poly Batface girl? Uh, these are the days of. So you know, it's it's a good album. And I think at that period too, is that 87, 88? A lot of people, a lot of rock bands had to put out epic albums. You know, um, now as far as you, you remember, like in the eighties, people asking us. I try to remember someone asked us one time. What's your band's message for like? Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what do you mean? <laughs> Come on, like do we have to have a message? Well, that yeah, yeah, we're we're kind of straying from the subject, but that was I remember that time. You know, the you two had the unforgettable fire, and you know th- things were getting big. You had to be you had to get big. Yeah, and, uh, and make the statements. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And it, you know, was, uh, I could just see something about Graceline also. Even though I didn't like the album, I was like, when all these other artists, because we had the artists against apartheid, and they were all getting mad at Paul Simon for recording in South Africa. But hello, he was recording with the indigenous musicians. Huh. That's, so I didn't like, why would they get mad at him? But, you know, there's a, it was a whole movement. And uh, so he got a lot of crap over recording there. But as he said, I'm recording over there to make this album with these musicians. And I, yeah. I started it on that. And he, he probably, I mean, did he probably t- took them on tour? Yeah, he, he, did. Did. He, he paid for the flights and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was doing world music. He was ahead of the curve as far as world music goes. Ab- absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's not unlike the you know, it's not unlike the folk tradition either. Um, if, if you look like even to um, um, a mighty wind, the folkman, um, <laughs> guys saying um, <laughs> the Spanish Civil War is a time I often think about. You know, it's like. <laughs> Well, that was the skulls of Quinto, I think. Oh, yeah. Stretch the, it the, out. The skulls of Quinto. 
Now get this. 16 Grammy Awards for Paul Simon. 16. Wow. For his solo work and collaborative work, including three albums of the year. Bridge Over Troubled Water, Still Crazy After All These Years, and Graceland. Wow. Album of the year. Graceland, he, was, Graceland was the album of the year. Do you know the year? 1986. 86. 86. Okay. Yeah. Perry, you and I were working at uh, Cordette when that record came out. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's kind of when we first met over there. Yeah, that's right. right? But I remember that album coming out and uh, the music of that of that time. Yeah, but uh, I mean, no, he's done a lot of nice stuff after. Um, he did. He, did. Something... he didn't he write a Broadway play or something. Or... Oh, I don't know. He he wrote a Broadway musical called The Cape Man. Yes, that's right. And he recorded a companion album called Songs from the Cape Man. Now I can't say I've heard anything from that. It was from 1997. Okay. I remember reading, yeah, I remember reading about the play. Um, some well-known singer was in it. Really? Yeah, yeah. But interesting. I wonder what theater it ran in or how long it ran for. Oh, it ran, uh, it says it right here. It was uh, theatrical, prevented, uh, it was in 41 professional theaters located at Lincoln Center, Midtown Manhattan. It was in London at the West End. Hmm. It was kind of all over the place. The Winter Garden Theater. Nice. Yep. Yeah, uh, Brad Gray was part of the uh, producers and financiers of that. Just a little, another Sopranos connection there. Yeah. You know, I like the part where Kate Man grabs the guy and says, I'm Kate Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, the original cast, by the way, was Mark Anthony, Mark Ruben Anthony. Blades, right. and Ruben Blades. Yeah. Ruben Blades. Who's Mark Anthony? Is he the one that was in Hamilton? No, no. Mark Anthony is a very, uh, really good salsa singer. Yeah. Um, and he went English. He was one of the, there was this, just kind of veering off the path briefly. In the 90s, a lot of Latin artists were encouraged to sing in English because a couple had big hits. And Mark Anthony was one of them. And uh, I like the guy. He, he He's like, to me, he's a salsa version of Freddie Mercury. He sings, he sings his heart out every time. I think he was, you know, in those, like, he came up around the time, like Menudo and other things, but he was a real deal. You know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one other thing. Paul Simon's in uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. Once with Simon and Garfunkel, and the other time as a solo artist. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Now, yeah. So, well, you know, the whole Simon and Garfunkel that was what made them. You know, and uh, I always say, you know, he, he was wise. Where he's a great singer, but I, I we've talked about this before too, where. He told Art Garfunkel, you got to sing this song, Bridge, Bridge Over Tumble Water. And Art was like, ah, he didn't think he could do it justice. He just didn't want And it's me. It's, like, it's a tour de force. It's, it's a, a great thing that you said that, that he was smart enough to know that Artie yeah. has to sing this song. Right. And I'm sure he wanted to sing it. And probably in his, you know, since he wrote it, he probably knew. He heard it in his head how great it would be. But um, that's, I think that's also, was it Larry Nechtel? Well, here, I have the list right here. Oddly enough, Paul Simon did not even play on it. It says Artie Garfunkel. Lead vocals. It doesn't say Artie. Doesn't <laughs> no, say Artie. I, I say Artie. <laughs> Artie. Artie Garfunkel, lead vocals. Paulie Simon, backing vocals. Larry Nechtel on piano, the great, he's the guy that, uh, that song was made by Larry Nechtel, right? Yep. Joe Osborne on bass, Hal Blaine on drums and percussion, and Gary Coleman played the vibraphone. That little guy? <laughs> <laughs> different strokes 
What you talking oh, about? Man? They were in grammar school vibraphones. <laughs> <laughs> and two other people, Jimmy Haskell and Ernie Freeman, did the string arrangements, which were great, by the way. Oh God, yeah. I mean, the whole the whole thing is just a blow. It, it's dude. a it's a masterful piece of music, isn't it? It really is. It, it's incredible. That that's a song. That's one of those classic songs. Whenever that's on, I listen to it from beginning to end, or whatever, however long I get it. I listen to the end. It's it's just amazing. It's stirring. My father loved that song. He's like, that's beautiful. <laughs> you yeah. know what I you know what I always loved by them? Like one of their last singles was called Cecilia. That was the last single from them. Cecilia breaking my heart. Yeah. And apparently, apparently, from what I read, that Paul Simon um had a him and his brother or somebody had a tape recorder. And they just came up with that little little thing, you know. Do you know the beginning? You yeah. hear that echoey thing. Yeah. They did that, and when he went to the studio, he got them to loop it, put it on a tape loop. Hmm. That became huh. the whole, the whole essence of the song. Very cool. From, uh, a, not, from a little not, homemade tape recorder. Not unlike the way uh, Jive Talking happened. Barry uh, Gibb was driving across one of those kind of metal clackety bridges in probably in Miami or uh, and he, the the car was making that rhythm so so that it stuck in his head the rhythm caught him every when he drove on it and that's the beginning that you hear on Jive talking before the I, I saw that up. yeah that was interesting yep. yep so anyway Paul Simon was born in Newark New Jersey ah. he was born he was born in Newark yeah and he grew up ah. in the borough of Queens in yep. New York City Forest Hills I think maybe no no Nice section to count. He began performing with his school his school friend Artie Garfunkel in 1956 <laughs> when they were in their early teens. And uh, after limited success, the pair reunited. They, they kind of broke up, right? Yeah. And uh, the pair reunited after an electrified version of their song The Sounds of Silence became a hit in 1966 thanks to that producer, right? Yep. Bob Johnson or Tom Johnson. Tom Wilson? I think it was Tom Wilson. Tom was Wilson. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. That's what I that's what I think. Yeah. We got to get back to the producer series at some point. We do. Yeah. We do. So, well, you know, this was a good subject, but also since we're talking about like the studio and stuff. Well, what? Very, well you know, during the course of the 60s too, he also wrote some other songs with other artists. It wasn't Red Rubber Ball. Uh, no, the um, Feeling Groovy, the um, whatever bridge song that is. 59th Street Bridge Song. Or 59, that's, yeah. that's Paul Simon. Yeah, well, they recorded that too, but it was covered by many people. But I think I think that uh, the song that we know, that the, the big the bigger hit, I guess, of the two, I don't think that was Feeling, you know, that wasn't Paul Simon or, or Simon Garfunkel, was it? Uh, the, the Red Rubber Ball was a circle, right? Red Rubber Ball, yeah. Did he did he write that song, Paul Simon? Yeah, because he well, he was a Brill Building. He was briefly a Brill Building guy, or he he did you know he he did something like that for a while. But I think those songs he wrote during that time. But anywho, yeah, well, you know what? He could have very easily changed his name and become a part of the Italo rock scene, but he didn't. Uh, no, and, well, you well, he. he Paul Simon, he's a Jewish boy, you know. Um, you you got to have at least one Italian in the band. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm going to say, there's not, not one Italian in the whole orchestra. <laughs> oh, by the way, I, I, was watching, I was watching something this morning on some obscure 
channel and uh i was up early and uh they had a frank sinatra concert from 1970 oh really with no blue eyes is back and grace kelly princess grace was introducing him because i guess the show was in monaco i've seen it You've i've seen, seen it? it yes and uh he was pretty on. He was pretty. He was on. You know? Yeah, he, yeah. He, he was great. Uh, that might have been old Blue Eyes is back. Um, if you ever see the concert for the Americas, damn, damn, he was amazing. It just like, really? yeah, you he can tell why he was dancing about and everything. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and I don't know. Yeah. I assume that was Nelson Riddle, perhaps. Uh, wow, conducting right. the orchestra. You know, I shouldn't. I shouldn't speak out of school. I don't know. No, you, you know, but I, I do feel that the Nelson Riddle stuff that's from the reprise years i think that's the cream of the uh cream of the crop for french yeah you know because when you when you when you love the lost like french, <laughs> do it <I> do it <laughs> you know <laughs> speaking of which speaking of i bought spinal tap i bought I, i've never owned it i bought it tonight so I'm gonna, watch, I'm gonna watch it after the podcast because <laughs> they're making a sequel yeah hey lou have a yeah, cucumber man. salad while you're watching it <laughs> of course um uh, and I, I have to extract the armadillo from my trousers first. <laughs> so we have, we have a couple other things to discuss, but Jimmy Page, right? Yeah. Everyone knows Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page, great guitar player, Led Zeppelin, but he was a studio session guy in the early yeah, 60s, great. right? Yeah, yeah. And some of the things he's played on, I mean, you and I know, right? We all know that he, you know, he's played on... Kink songs, right? Now, it, it, wait, okay. The, the yeah. rumor, um, you really got me. Is that Dave Davies or is that Jimmy Page? It's Dave Davies. Okay, that's that, good. Jimmy Page may have just played rhythm guitar. Well, um, I think it's, it's pronounced as Dave Davies. <laughs> Did you know that Jimmy Page played guitar on Goldfinger by Shirley Bassey? Really? Wow. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You, you, know song, a, you know a song of hers I really love? What? That's just history repeating. It's a great song. I never knew. I thought that was a guy. What are you doing? <laughs> I hear it. Hello. Um, I'm here to start a one. Yeah, really. So, I mean, this guy was... It's incredible. Remember that song uh, by the Nashville Teens, Tobacco Road? Uh, yeah. He played on that. Wow. That's, a, that's that. the, the guitar you hear. That's Jimmy Page. I say maybe Jimmy Page. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Unbelievable, right? Yes, I'd say so. And Unbelievable. He's, he's played, he, played on, uh, he played on the Rolling Stones, Heart of Stone. Really? That's him on playing the lead? Here's the catch. He was on he was on a version of it, but they mixed him out. And then I guess in nineteen seventy or something, they released um, a compilation. I I don't know what the compilation was called. That version is on some compilation with Jimmy Page playing guitar on it. He played a lot of rhythm guitar on these things. Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah. So Remember that song by uh, Van Morrison, Them, Baby, Please Don't Go? Yeah. That Jimmy Page played on that one as well. Yeah. Was he doing that riff? No, no, no. That's the guitar player from Them, but he's holding the back. He's holding the rhythm together. 
Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes they, they, they play parts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Part, part is part. Yeah. And uh, he played on The Who, Can't Explain. Huh. And, and the B-side, which was called like Bald-Headed Woman or something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but he played he played rhythm. Now, the interesting thing to me was that, well, Lou and I, we know that uh, he played on Donovan Records, right? He played on Sunshine Superman. Right. Uh, is he on Hurdy Gurdy Man? Now, Hurdy, that's the thing. Hurdy Gurdy Man, because it pretty much has Led Zeppelin yeah. playing on the... Uh, now there was there was some dispute because it's Jimmy Page on guitar, John Paul Jones on bass, and um, who's the Led Zeppelin drummer? John Bonham. John Bonham on drums. There's another drummer who played on a lot of Donovan records. Said he played on that, but I think he's mistaken because if you listen to "Hurdy Gurdy Man" by Donovan and you listen to the drum fills, it's without a doubt John Bonham. Yeah, and um, that drummer I, I don't know his name, but. Uh... Noted for his uh, very um, original and creative drumming on Sunshine Superman, because it really is. He's doing a lot of things from the snare to the tom toms. Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, it's really tight. It's really good, good drumming too. You know. Yep. Yeah, and uh, he played on a Marion Faithful song called "In My Time of Sorrow." Wow is is, is that the uh, is that the um, the, the Brio Brothers or Graham Parsons? In my hour of dark, no, was that? No, no, that's, that's something different. Yeah. <laughs> you what? Well, let's hear it. It says here one of the rare pre Led Zeppelin tracks where Jimmy Page received a writing credit in my time of sorrow was penned by the guitarist alongside with his then girlfriend and what the world needs now singer Jackie D. Shannon. So. Wow. He wrote that song with Jackie DeShan and his girlfriend at the time. All right. Now, I got I have an issue with this because yeah. my lead-in song that I was going to play and, and do is a Jackie DeShannon song, and she is my subject today. She is the thing I wanted to talk about. Well, well cool. All right. Yeah. And so that's why I wasn't going to mention it until I was going to talk about her. And she's very interesting to begin with, but... um. Because they wrote some songs together, uh, Dream Boy, Don't You Turn Your Back on Me, and it's believed that Paige wrote the song Tangerine about their breakup. What's the song called? Uh, Tangerine. Oh, on the on one of those Led Zeppelin songs? It's, it's an old ja- the old jazz song, Tangerine. Tangerine's <laughs> 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 to a lady proud. <laughs> That was smithereens. It's a diet lunch that you can munch out. <laughs> jingles, nothing but jingles. <laughs> really? Yep, yep. So um, you want to go into Jackie D. Shannon in a few minutes, then, right? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, and, cool. Uh, but I, but I found I, you know, I started uh, reading about her through a side door because it was not the intention. But what well, I'm going to well, do? Well, that's cool. I, I, I so I kind of tipped I tipped everyone off that that's where we're going. But I just want to say, yeah, cool. Bolero. Right. Yeah. Apparently, Jimmy Page wrote that. Well, it actually it was taken from uh, some Spanish uh, orchestral piece called Bolero. Yeah. Right. It's what they use in um in ten with uh, Bo Derek. Right. But John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones is the bass player. Keith Moon plays drums on Beck's Bolero. Really? Yeah. Yep. Keith Moon did a session. Keith Moon played that. Yeah. 
But, you know, right before they go into the heavy section, you hear someone scream before the drums. You know, that was Keith Moon. Probably. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Very cool. So, yeah. So it was um, Jimmy Page playing the electric 12 string, John Paul Jones on bass, Keith Moon on drums. And, of course, Jeff Beck played the lead guitar. Right? Hmm. Yeah. Pretty cool, huh? Is it, now, is that a George Martin produced Beck? Because uh, he did produce uh, some of Beck's Yeah, stuff. I don't know about that. This was 1967. Beck's Bolero was 67? Wow. 1967, it says. Yeah, Beck's I, Bolero. I, probably not George Martin. I think he did. Yeah, he was probably a little busy. Yeah. <laughs> with Sergeant Becker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one other thing, too. Joe Cocker, uh, he played on Joe Cocker with a little help from my friends, 1968. Damn. Five tracks. And uh, yeah. And that's like right before Led Zeppelin. He was actually in Yardbirds at the time. Uh, he was still doing sessions at that time. Yeah. Good. You're yeah. researching it too, right? Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I, I found that pretty interesting that a guy like him and what he became, of course, you know, when I was a kid, you used to read these magazines, you know, Jimmy Page is the greatest guitar player ever. You know, Clapton is the greatest. Oh, it's, this is all nonsense. You know? You know yeah. You know what, though? I'm sitting here because while you guys were talking, I ran over to my awesome vinyl collection. And after Zeppelin reformed in 1970, it's kind of a session. Him and George such an Heavy Friends album uh, with John Bonham on it, too, and Noel Redding. It's a pretty wild album. Uh, huh? Yeah, Jimmy Page... Noel Redding, Jeff Beck, John Bonham, Nicky Hopkins. Hmm. Uh, so that even after Zeppelin reformed, he, I, and I believe he did a couple other little sessions in 1970 uh, here and there. Um, I guess he was just contractually obligated. But um, there was a little, uh, him and Richie Blackmore were considered two hot shot session players in the 60s. But Richie Blackmore was not at his level yet. He had to woodshed a little bit before he you know, got huh. to that level. But yeah, Blackmore also played on a ton of sessions. Richie Blackmore was a little bit younger, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. A couple of years, few years, few years. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear what he played on. Yeah, um, I have a CD somewhere. It was songs that were hits in England, not so big here. So he didn't play like on a Goldfinger or anything like that. Right. But the stuff yeah. he played on was big in England, and um, I think when Page stopped doing sessions. Richie Blackmore kind of picked up that that session work because he was known as. But in the beginning, he wasn't that good, and he really worked at his art, and he and he uh, woodshedded for a couple of years. You know, I I think there's probably a little competition there between cool. two of them. And Mark, uh, the other day, I heard Highway Star when I'm driving, and next thing I know, I'm, I'm I want to go 150 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell that, that whatever they set out to do in that song worked, and the guitar solo is, is amazing on that song. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, I've heard a lot of people don't like. Apparently, he's a lot of people don't like Richie Blackmore. They don't think he's that good. I've loved everything I heard. It's not the most amazing, fastest notes, but he's got great rhythm. But that is a great guitar solo. Richie Richie Blackmore. Um, I, when someone says they don't like him, I say, well, he's got incredible accuracy. His notes are are spot on. When he does blues, his bends are perfect. Nothing's ever flat, and he's got. A perfect sense of time. The guy, if you'll, yeah, some of the live stuff he does when he starts just chicken picking, you know, and dun, 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 but, but he's perfect. I mean, he's just playing really good. Yeah, yeah he had great country. rhythm. He had, yeah, he had great riffs also. But it, yeah. I have one gripe about Richie Blackmore. What's that? It's the pull offs. He just, it's too many pull offs. Hmm. You know, it's it's like a, it's a standard go to move that he has with the pull offs, and it's like he he does to my taste he does a little too much. But on that song, Highway Star. 
What, what is that called, Mark? That are, are, are those pull-offs on that? What pardon? I, I think that's great. Yeah, like doing it right now. What, like, what was he doing? Like arpeggios, or like he did it perfect. Arpeggios, yeah. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm playing it now, but I'm not plugged in, so you can't hear it. But but, but I, I've also heard Richie Blackmore claim, and maybe rightfully so, that he's heard Joe Satriani play that, and he said Joe Satriani hits the notes, but he plays it without soul. You know, like I'm not claiming anything, you know, but. Richie Blackmore stated that Satriani just hits the notes. He doesn't well, with feel. Yeah, my, my personal feeling on Satriani, coming from a guitar player point of view, Satriani is really good. He's excellent. He's a nice guy. He's a textbook. He, he's like he's like literally a how to play guitar guy. If you see one of his concerts, you could he covers everything. But sometimes, yeah, I agree. Emotion is missing. One of his students, Steve I, Steve I's got emotion. That guy's got a lot of emotion. Richie Blackmore had emotion. There is something. I agree with that. Although I just don't want to harp on a guy because he's technically a great guitar player. Right. No, yeah. I'm not harping. I'm just saying that Richie I Black agree with claimed you. that Joe, he's seen Joe Satriani and he hits all the notes, but he yeah. just doesn't play it with feel for some reason. Right. I'm not right. saying that that's what I think. I'm saying that's what Richie said. Yeah, I kind of agree with Richie, but I'm not. I also don't want to damn Satriani because I got most of his albums. It's just. You don't get soul from his playing in, a, in the same way. He's a textbook yeah. player. Well, you're yeah. not going to offend him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Lou, I, I know a little bit about Jackie DeShannon, but I'd like to learn more. So do you want to? Uh... Yeah, sure. Um, Let's get into it. Oh, yeah, can, we, can we do something real first before that? Oh, just because, do whatever you guys want to do. Well, oh, just because, you know, listening to last week's uh, podcast, you guys did a great job, you know. Um, Thank you. And th thanks, thanks for saying hi to me and all that stuff. But Perry, I want to thank you. Um, you kind of picked up the mantle of a rock and roll macabre story with that Mike Portnoy thing, with his mom dying in the plane crash. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I did that for Mark, actually. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, but uh, yeah, an interesting story. But um, you talked about Thunderclap Newman, and you know the song "Something's in the Air" with you know it was that Pete Townsend produced it and played bass on yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was like, you know, I love that. Song. Trains. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 such a great song and. That is that and um, Uncle Admiral and Albert Halsey, whatever, and, and, and Wilford Brimley uh, by McCartney. Those songs that encapsulates the time for me, like, you know, Young Summer. And it's such a beautiful song. And it, it said it is a great production. It's a really, really great recording. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the band Thunderclap Blue, and that was a, it was a uh, Pete Townsend and Kit Lambert, uh, his manager, kind of did that band to showcase this guy's uh, the songwriter's uh, talents. But the songwriter's name was uh, John Speedy Keen. Yes. Uh, you know, vocalist, drummer, and guitar player. Uh, Thunderclap Newman was the piano player. So yep. uh, Andy Thunderclap Newman and Jimmy, you were talking about young Jimmy McCulloch on, on guitar. 15 years old. Yeah, yeah. He died at the age of 26 from a morphine and alcohol overdose. Yep. Died young. Um, but that song, that song was the number one UK hit. And what a great song. Uh, it, was, it was the U.S. number. It was 37 in the U.S. Hot 100. But um, Yeah, you want me to play it again? Uh, no, you, you can't go. No, we, we only got so many copyright friends that we can do in one thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm playing it myself, it's not copyright infringement. There you go, it sounds sped up. It is, it is a great, it's a great song, and the remix sounds even better sometimes, you know. Yeah, so yeah, as Thunderclub Newman has gone on, you know, people have come and gone, obviously. But, um, one drummer that was with them is a guy named Mark Berzizicki, Berzizicki, uh, yeah. from Big Country. 
Really? So, yeah. So, and he also he played with Townsend as well. I think on the, oh. all, all the best Cowboys have Chinese eyes. I think that's him and Tony Butler, uh, the bass player, on Slit Skirts. But that guy was in Big Country and then went on to play with Thunderclap Newman. But anyway, so uh, the other day I was listening to uh, Springsteen's XM channel and I heard him do a cover of the song. Uh, it sounds like a 60s pop song, a really great song. And I'm like, wow, Bruce, it's a great cover by Bruce. And it's a song called When You Walk in the Room. Oh, yeah, Jack. She wrote it. Yep. She wrote it. And yep. this, so this is the one by The Searchers. Great song, yeah. So I played about a minute on it, but um. Now, who was that? The the Seekers, the Searchers. That's the Searchers. The Searchers, yeah. Who uh, didn't they also do Needles and Pinza? Needles and Pinza, <laughs> written by uh, Sonny Bono and uh, Jack Nitschke. But that's a Jackie DeShannon song. That's a Jackie DeShannon song. Yeah. Um, she now, American. Uh, she's an American born in Hazel, Kentucky. Um, she's 80 years old. She's still around. Um, when I started reading about her, she was one. I, I, I always thought she was black. She's a white girl, white woman. Um, she was one of the first female singer-songwriters in the early rock and roll era, um, but not like a real-building person. She was kind of independent like that. But, you know, she had some, like, early country-western stuff she did. Um, but I never knew, because the only thing I heard about her um, – a was the love, big, put, the big 45 put yeah, a little love, love in your heart, heart we, we, right? she co-wrote that with that with her brother and another writer but what the world needs now is the 65 and that was a Bacharach david song um but i was what dion warwick sung what the world needs now so but anyway it's, that's there's such great songs this, this well, is Jackie Stanley recorded that as well correct Oh, yeah. Well, the definitive version that most people know, the biggest hit was Jackie DeShannon. Yeah, but I, I, agree. I, I thought it was Dionne Warwick. Or she might have covered it, too. Who knows? Um, but she wrote. Uh, yeah. So she wrote When You Walk in the Room. Um, that song has been covered a lot. Once I started looking at it, I'm like, I'd like to play that song. Uh, it was covered by the, you know, the Searchers, Pam Tillis. That's Chris, a great pop song. Yeah. Uh, Chris Hillman did a, a version of it. Um, Agnetha Faltzgog from ABBA. Uh, Paul Carrick, and I heard the version that uh, Bruce Springsteen did, a live version. You said um, Pam Tillis recorded that? The country Pam, Pam Tillis, yeah, Mel Tillis' what? daughter. But, um, but yeah, she, she, wrote, she wrote a lot of songs. She had a, a great career. She wrote for Brenda Lee. Um, yeah, she, she chose the name Jackie. It's not a real name, but she, she wanted a cross-gender name. And so, actually, I, her real name is Meyer, but I forgot what it was. Uh, but she covered, she covered Needles and Pins. Uh, she had a number one hit in Canada with it. But um, but I, that wasn't the biggest hit in America. That was the Searchers uh, that did that. But yeah, you know, I actually I have an album of Searchers. When I moved, I found it a vinyl. It's from the '80s, and um, I forgot the name of the song. Switchbox Susan. Yeah, I think version. I gave you that record. You gave me that record. But yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. that is that really the Searchers? Is there anything? Left? Speaking of bands that were not bands when you know them anymore, we should have thrown that one in there because that was just nothing like they sounded like. But you know, but the, you know, the guitar sound and that twelve string guitar, or whatever that was playing the riff there. Yeah, what what, what what a great riff and a, what a great pop song. But it's been covered so many times. Uh, 
Paul Carrick did it on his first solo record, like in the late 80s. But then the version I saw was a live version. It actually was much better. But, but when the, when I had that 45, when I was a kid, of Jackie DeShan, Put a Little Love in Your Heart, and the way the song starts with the little, I don't know if it's like a little electric piano, yeah. you know, and it just builds up. Lend him a helping hand. Put a, yeah. It's a soulful little song when you think about it, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, great chord changes, but the, the melody. Yeah. Um, I mean, talk about a timeless, timeless message, too. I mean, that's the one thing about that era, too. Yeah, they're, those songs, they're, they're cross. I mean, they're, they're cross generational. They're, they're kind of crossover hits in a lot of ways. You but know, you, whether, can, you, whether, you can hear like when it's uh, and the world and the world. You can hear like an orchestra. You can hear, yeah. you know, you can hear choir singing back there. You know, oh, they, yeah. there's so much you can do. It's a soulful song. Well, if you think, well, if you think about what the world needs now, even though she didn't write that, it's got those elements that you just mentioned. You know, it builds up, you know, those backup vocals. Um, and you cannot argue with the message of these songs. You know, they're, they're pure, you know, yeah. such, such great writing, you know, and it's not, it's funny because they're not controversial by any, any stretch of imagination, but they're such wonderfully crafted songs, you know, and we were kids, we never knew how great these musicians were that played on those, you know, they sounded good to us, but you don't know what it takes. We didn't know what it takes to, to put that into that. Like the drummers aren't playing a whole, like um, put a love in your heart. He's, he's, the guy's playing, whoever it is, I wonder now, he's playing a groove, but, you know, you think, well, anybody could do that, but evidently not. Right. But, yeah, so, Jackie, so, yeah, she's, um, now, she, uh, when the Beatles did their first tour of the U.S., she did a tour with them. So, apparently, really? I, I, there was rumor that her and John Lennon had a little hookup. Uh-huh. I heard that, too. Yep, and um, Ry Cooter was the guitar player with her on that first tour. Oh, what Ry saw. I... <laughs> Yeah, right. But I'm wondering, like, that's pretty cool. Like, I, I don't know much about Ry Cooter, except, you know, I, I know of him, but I'm not on much about his background or what he did. But, you know, that's an interesting thing what these musicians did. You know, like, I, I played with Jackie DeShannon for a tour, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and apparently that uh, Annie Lennox and Al Green recorded a version of that. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's funny. I was going to mention Annie Lennox. Uh, I was saying, like, I, I want to talk about a, a female songwriter um, or a singer that I like. Um, and I happen to really like Shirley Manson from Garbage. I think they were a great band. I heard, but I was I heard I heard, I heard Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics the other day. It's been years, and I'm like, it's a pretty amazing song when you think about it. And back then, I'm like, it's kind of techno poppy, and I've always been kind of I, I like some stuff, but I don't I've never fully embraced it. But listening to that song, it's a it's an incredible recording. But and she's an amazing singer, and um, as a producer, yeah. I'll tell you what, Lou, too, what makes the song good, that old analog synth sound. So when you turn yeah. it up, it's the equivalent of a Les Paul. You know, it's like that huh. analog sound. Yeah. But but those, those musical interludes in there are great. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's serious. It's serious music. It really hit me. I'm like, it took me a long time to listen back and said, you know, that was it was very different. It wasn't it wasn't cheesy synth pop or whatever. You might were like some kind of throwaway fluff. Not that all of that stuff was, but, you know, it wasn't. It had, the music had some depth to it, though. That and the video yeah. with the cows was just plain bizarre. Yeah, and, and you know uh, a lot of that stuff. Isn't it funny how thirty years later we're rediscovering some of these songs are great? It just when it came out, it was a hit. When something's a hit, I kind of let it go by. You know, I can't. Yeah. And Mark, Mark, I, Mark I, I love a hit. I mean, if it's if it's a shit hit, it's, you know, I, I do like that idea of the hit single. That if it's a good thing that can. 
appeal and you know stand on its own without being novel or right you know so so it's it says here that she was signed to liberty records liberty liberty and and liberty records was paying the, like you know the uh the chipmunks you know sign. oh really <laughs> yeah alvin and guess and it says here liberty records was a record label founded in the united states by chairman simon warnaker <laughs> in 1955 Simon. wow so i don't that's got to be lenny warnaker's relative i you know i don't know <laughs> who knows wow yeah. <laughs> yep Liberty Records. I wonder. Eventually, they gave way to something else, or you know, a lot of things that would get absorbed. By well, I, actually, it says here that uh, Liberty they folk they 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 signed Lionel Newman. They signed um, they signed Henry Mancini. Huh. Wow. In nineteen fifty six. Okay. And it's, it's Simon Warnaker or Warnicker. Simon Warnaker. Yeah. Now there's Warnaker and Warnaker. I think Warnaker was Warner Brothers, right? War, War, this is, uh, it says here, Simon Warnaker was a violinist and record producer from Los Angeles, best known for co-founding Liberty Records. And it's spelled just like Lenny Warnaker's name. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'll try and find out if there's any relation there. Say that name after five years. Warnaker. Check this shit out. Record producer Lenny Warnaker is Simon's son. Okay. So Lenny Warnaker's father founded Liberty Records. Liberty Records. Yeah. Okay. Now, is, is Lenny the president of Warner Brothers or was he or was he the he, at, at one time he was he was he was um, he was a producer. He produced Gordon Lightfoot. He, well, yeah, was the guy, yeah. he was the guy that put those little violin touches in those Gordon Lightfoot songs in it. They were very nice. Oh yeah. I love those productions. Now, now we we talked about <clears throat> Um, if you could read my mind, where there's two versions, one yes. with a harmony and one without. Yes, you so, know that, right? Yeah, because uh, a couple of weeks ago we discussed this. A couple of weeks ago, I heard it. I heard the one with the harmonies, and it's funny. I, I was playing that song with a friend of mine a while back, and I, I said, "John, sing the harmony." He goes, "What harmony?" I said, "There's a harmony underneath uh, some of those parts of the verses." Yeah. And like, so, but then then he heard it. He's like, "Holy shit!" There was one I used to have, but I don't have it anymore. And it used to go, I never thought I could, never thought I could feel it. And then we yeah. went up feels like I, that I just still get like, oh, yeah, man. And it was him doing both of them. It was Gordon Lightfoot. Right, right. Harmonizing himself. But, oh, yeah. We, ha- we haven't got into depth about Gordon Lightfoot. We've been kind of waiting. I've been waiting for the new format to, to go to give him his digital do his headphone microphone do yeah and we could yeah. do bob dylan neil young uh oh we got to revisit Prague. come on Prague part two <laughs> sure sure <laughs> well that broadcast so that jackie DeShannon thing i found i found great because i had that record man and i knew that she wrote a couple of other songs yep but to me that that was just great yeah cool yeah it was a, a neat little thing because you know once I once I saw that she wrote that, you know, that search was so and I've searched yeah. her song. Um, and then I'm like, you know, I heard it through a Bruce, then heard I I'd heard the search of song on like Underground Garage, but then I saw the other versions. I'm like So she was in her twenties doing this because she's eight, yeah. eighty years old now. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Those songs have legs. Those songs are they stand the test of time. That is great. In fact, I, I've played Put a Little Love in Your Heart at the Spiritual Center gigs. 
I tell that is a soulful song. That is a really soulful song. Yeah. It's a like oh well, yeah, it's almost a religious song, right? Well, it's 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 a love message. Put a little love in your heart. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. You know. Let me we don't need, we don't need any more mountains. <laughs> Let me ask you guys a question. I'm going to mention three artists, three or four artists. I want to know what you think about them. Okay. All right. I'm going to just spit them out right in a row. Madonna. Oh, wait, 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 hold on a second. I, I forgot. I forgot one thing. Yeah. About um, uh, Jackie DeShannon. Uh, she also wrote uh, Betty Davis Eyes. No, you're kidding. Yeah. No. Yes, she did. Ah, that is great. Right. And um, but oh, she, did, she did not write the follow up single, which was called Marty Feldman Eyes. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Take My Wife. She's got Marty Feldman Eyes. <laughs> Um, but now she, I, and also, I, I, it's funny enough. I just realized I've been listening to her on Saturday morning. There's a show called um, Breakfast with the Beatles on the Beatles Channel. Uh, yeah. She does Breakfast with the Beatles, so she's still broadcasting, which is great. She's 80 years old, and she's got this history behind her. You know, great career, great music. I mean, really quality music and timeless. And she's talking about the Beatles on a, on an XM show at the age of 80. Man, that's Go. great. Very oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, there was a DJ in New York who used to do Bruce Juice in the morning. Carol Miller. She's on XM now. Really? Yeah, no, no, yeah. this is like Dave Herman or something. He used no, to do Bruce Juice. No, no, the Carol, Herman, uh, Carol Miller was Bruce Juice. Dave Herman was into Hookie Dookie Dookie. No, was that Scott Muni? <laughs> no, that was Scott Muni. <laughs> no, uh, Dave Herman, he'd be like, yeah, we're going to put on the CD. Like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hey, so let me ask uh, you guys this. Let me ask you guys, how do you feel about Madonna, Britney Spears, Janet Jackson? Uh, Madonna, a couple catchy songs. And I, I, I'm going to tell you something. Sot Mitter and I covered a Madonna song uh, in our little duo. I, ha- I have the tip. CD. I've heard it. Yep. All right. All right. Um, I've actually <laughs> I've played Borderline on acoustic guitar just to amuse myself. Because the chords are nice. <laughs> it's, a nice it's a nice, yeah. Can, it's, you can be yeah. do, You can play it on ukulele. Yeah, sure. Um, that's very tuneful stuff. Overall, I mean, it, it, I'm, it, as far as the '80s music goes, there's production things that I'll just never be able to get beyond that. That big yeah. cold, that big cold sound, and um, you know, I, I, I would think like some of those singers, you know, I guess I guess I need names and like Paula Abdul and things where. They really weren't singers per se, but I mean, I give Madonna more credit for artistry. But as as a provocateur, I think the provocateur overshadows her artistry. How do you feel, Mark? Now, I, I loved her in A League of Her Own. A League of Their Own. <laughs> yeah, she played a snotty little, you know, wise ass. So yeah, yeah. it wasn't a stretch for her. Yeah, um, Madonna. I, I like that movie anyway. It was a great movie. Yeah. So uh, we're just doing Madonna. I, Madonna, Britney Spears, Spears Janet Jackson. I, I totally agree with Lou on Madonna that um, those '80s, like the production, like Holiday or is it Holiday? They were actually good pop songs. The production was so freaking dry. I can't listen to them. They're just terrible production. And so we're musicians, right? And all we hear is just drum machines. So it's hard yeah. to listen. But she does. I, I, she had a very powerful influence on pop music. Yeah, I considered her. She straddled that line between being a musician or not musician. Uh, yeah, she was musician and a uh, um, kind a of celebrity, a, a celebrity, celebrity. There you go. But she also has some actually after the 80s, she put out some really good music. 
I admit, I got a couple of her CDs and I love them. And she did that album with William Orb, the new age musician. I can't remember the name. She's got some of the best ballads out there that will always be in my mind, you know. You but, Madonna, right? Yeah, Madonna, yeah. I, I, thought, I thought Crazy For You was a good song when it came out. Yeah, she, I she do. She kept evolving. She, you know, with the, you know, with her, of course, they just say she changes her image. But she's there's an evolution there. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. As far as the other two, um, uh, as far as Britney Spears and Janet Jackson, um, I'm, I'm not sure Britney Spears has written any of her material. Or Janet Jackson, I think, has, but I think as a songwriter, I think Madonna probably has, has more of a, a thumbprint on her own material than the, the other two singers we're talking about. Britney Spears, I mean, I just know, you know, the early videos and, you know, the girls obviously had a, a time of life. But, um, you know, I, I thought that stuff was kind of, I don't know, I, I was in my 30s when it came out. So, I, you know, now I remember a certain friend of ours drooling over her um, Catholic school girl, <laughs> her, uh, <laughs> her video. So, you know, the song Baby Hit Me One More Time. You know, we know what you're talking about. You know, it's all about sex. Well, um, but, you know, the thing is, was she singing about it? Of course she was, you know, unless she's talking about getting beaten, which it really wasn't the case. And, well, I have you know, to admit, and that ain't cool. I have an ulterior motive for bringing this up. Uh-oh. Well, can I, Luke, uh, sorry, yeah. can I just say one thing? Yeah. Britney Spears, just because it was a big thing with Britney Spears. It was a competition between her and Christina Aguilera. Christina Aguilera was really a good singer. She sang yeah. good. Um, she had a voice, yeah. Yeah, whereas Britney Spears was like just vapid air, but she had one song that when Richard Thompson played it acoustically, I realized, oops, I did it again, was a great song. She didn't write it, but when Richard Thompson played it solo acoustic on NPR, I was like, wow, oh, damn, those chords are yeah. great. That's a great song. Well, you could, she, he heard it, yeah. But my, my ulterior motive was this. Can you imagine if one of your children says, Dad, I want to be a dancer. You know, I want to dance. Mm-hmm. And people like Madonna, Britney Spears, Janet Jackson, people who want to be professional dancers, they get hired by them yeah. when yeah. they do these world tours. Like, yeah, you can be a dancer. You can yeah. be a dancer and you can go tour the world with Madonna and Janet Jackson and Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and whoever else. Like, you can. It, it can really come true. It's like... It's- being, you know, I'm an artist. I want to dance. It's not. It, it can happen. Well, it's, it's a valid. A... Cheryl Crow got her. She got some kind of a start. Was she? A, was she a backup singer? Yeah. A backup singer. That's for uh, Michael Janet Jackson. Jackson. For Michael Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. Now Janet Jackson had a song, a hit in the late '90s. I can't think of the name of it. It was really good. Uh, I wish. It just it just popped in my head because I haven't heard it in, in years. I might be early '90s. Uh, I can't. Had a great melody. If, if I can remember she, the name, she had an album called Janet, the one where the guy's got his hands on her boobs. That album is actually really good. It's got a lot of good songs on it, and uh, it might have been from that album. She's written. She's had not written. It was Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis that did a lot of her stuff. But yeah, she has some of the best songs, uh, pop songs out there for sure. Yeah. Now I can't say whether Madonna can really dance or. Britney Spears or Jet, they can dance because when you see the videos, it's like spin, cut, you know, it's a slick editing. Yeah. It look like I can dance, you know, yeah. with a slick editing. Well, you know what? It's like, that's the thing. Now, Madonna, Britney Spears, uh, I hate to say that, and then Janet Jackson, they were concentrating on their music. So their dancing wasn't the number one thing. So they could like go out there and dance lightly while their dancers behind them are working their asses off. But then you had someone like Paula Abdul, who was a dancer. 
but she really artistically wasn't a great singer. She was out right. there to dance first and foremost. Yeah. Right. But so the, <clears throat> the point I was getting to is that these kind of shows, they hire dancers because not everybody's going to be on Broadway. Right. But you yeah. can still be a dancer and still be a success. Mom, right. I'm a dancer, you know, and, you know, whatever it may be. I think that is a great thing that these kind of acts, these kind of performers hire dancers as well. Yeah. yeah. And um, I also to my... dance and sing. If you know, if you're doing serious dancing and singing, it's that's it's extremely strenuous. You know, it's, it's like Broadway where you know those musicals, if you're moving around a lot, it's a lot of training. It's extremely athletic. You know? yeah. 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 It's different <clears throat> than Morris Day in the time where like, you know, Jerome is the valet, you know. <laughs> that's different. I mean, you know, we're all older now. Try walking strenuously and talking on your cell phone. It's it's really hard to do, you know. <laughs> but you know what, the, Perry, you hit home with me because I got a high school friend, a good friend of mine I grew up with. He yeah. put his daughter through college and she went to college for dance and she's an incredible dancer. I've seen her. And but what is her future? Like she's going to graduate college dancing like she's going to try and get on what Broadway. If she got a gig with a Madonna, that would be awesome. And you're right. I mean, they are employing people that are artistic. So if Janet Jackson goes on a tour and has 60 people on stage, I used to like say, oh, this is all bullshit. Yeah. But you know what? They're employing artists. They're employing people in the arts. And I think that's great. It, 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 it's yeah. the arts. So that is, to me, that is a fabulous thing. I'm not a fan of, you know, but these are huge productions. Right. But what the hey, man? You know, Broadway, a Broadway show is huge production too, right? And also, yeah. if it was, if you think about the music, and a lot of it was in, in, to encourage dancing. You know, they have those type, type of beats. If it was one person doing some of that, it would look kind of silly, maybe. So a lot, yeah. of, these, a lot of these songs, they, they do look better in a sense with other people behind it. And like you said, Perry, that's true. You know, someone who you know break a leg. You know, someone who's never. What is the life of a dancer? You know, like like the Rush song, losing it. When is the ballet dancer? When can that dancer no longer dance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the point I was trying to make is this is a great thing that these kind of artists, like that, hire all these people. They keep the arts moving. That's yeah. a great thing to me. Yeah. Mark, you got anything you want to throw in here? Well, you know what? Let's bring out a a tired old classic rocker, but I've been listening to him a lot lately, and I I, I don't. I know all the, the big albums from Joe Walsh, but I've been listening to them. And I talked to you the other night about I was listening to So What. I never really listened to that album before. And I'm, yeah, I'm listening to a lot of Joe Walsh when the guy has a lot of um, sad stuff in his life, you know, and that's that automatically. I love it. I, I'm attached to a musician for that. But, um, you know, I, I just started really researching him. Uh, he was at Kent State when that stuff happened. Yeah. And I remember he was being interviewed on Q104. Remember that station in New York? And it was a rock line. I mean, remember that show? And I remember someone called yeah. in and said, Joe, I heard you were you were at Kent State. And you saw everything. And he said, I don't want to talk about it. Like, he just shoved it out of his head. And right away, that's the first time I said, this Joe Walsh that was a clown. I said, oh, there's a serious side to him, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. So it's and Mark Mark Mothersbaugh from um, Diva was also there, and his friend. Really? Was, yeah, one of the, one of the victims was a friend, a friend of his. So they were oh. there at the same time. Wow, I didn't know that. He's that old. From Akron, Ohio, I think. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So 
I'm listening to uh, So What, and I hear a song for Emma, and I'm, you know, researching. And when he did that album, his daughter had died three months previously in 1974. And I'm like, the guy lost his three month, uh, th- sorry, three year old daughter. Like, uh, this guy's been through, you know? Yeah. It's like, and so, like comedians who use comedy to mask something, I think Joe Walsh, but the comedy came later. His early albums, like, were really just they're almost progressive they were just fantastic albums but he's he has a sad side to him but he, he came through it and he god he cleaned himself up that guy was probably a worse addict than most musicians you know it, and the, the, that egos documentary there's things where he's being interviewed like later on it, you look back it's pretty sad you know he's got he's got like a tinfoil thing over his head you know it's just, <laughs> it, it's you know it's kind of funny but in a way you know it looks like you know Robbie Robertson said this about Richard Manuel, or like, and no, no, it was one of the other the band wives said that you know at one point the band they're all laughing at a drowning man, like Richard Manuel was drowning, and Joe Walsh was drowning at that point, you know. But like, what point was he crazy Joe, doing those, yeah. you know, those crazy yeah. things? But we look look back and you know, we, there's one thing he's on television. He looks terrible, you know. He sounded oh, great. Uh, this one he was playing with Jules Shear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, this is kind of slender. There's illusions that I read in uh, that period of his life that a lot of those people he were around were you were using him. Yeah, I don't know if that was him in particular, but you know, before you know the Eagles reunion when you know he had to clean up, and you know Don Felder drove him to rehab. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Don Felder, maybe Irvine, uh, Irving Azoff, but um, yeah, I mean, so you know that was him. Him and Felder were tight, but yeah, he's he's. Well, Great, great, underrated guitar player. I mean, even though he's, oh, yeah. and he's known for the Eagles and what he did there, but still. Was, oh, beforehand, the the yeah, the Barnstorm albums. Like, Lou, yeah. I agree with you. You see the videos on the Eagles, Eagles talk in the early '80s. He's got the beer sweats. His hair is all sweaty. Yeah, he's yeah. in the studio, and you could tell he just had like 24 Budweisers. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah, <You laughs> and it's like, yeah, well, I've never had 24, but and uh, it's funny because I was reading more. It's like when he was with Stevie Nicks, they really were in love. He left her because he said. One of us is going to die. They were doing so much coke, you know, and he, so he left her. So wow. it's just like tragedy after tragedy. And uh, my my second concert that I ever saw was because the first concert I was too young to really remember Eric Clapton. But my second concert was at the Middlelands. It was um, Stevie Nicks and Joe Walsh co-headlining tour. And um, huh. I remember laughing my ass off at Joe Walsh. Like he had clowns on stage. I'm like, this is great. But. It's like yeah, he went a little overboard with that later in his career. Yeah. It was just, it took me a long time to realize, yeah, this guy is a fantastic musician. Pete Townsend was an early uh, proponent of Joe Walsh because he loved the James gang. Hmm. Joe Walsh sold one of his first Les Pauls to Jimmy Page in 1969. That's how long this guy's been around the block. I mean, wow. he's, he's been doing a lot. And he's related to Ringo Starr. He's rock royalty. That's right. And he went to yeah. high school in New Jersey. He did. I, I, think I, in, I think in Montclair. Yeah, wow. he's part. He's part of the extended Beatles family because he's Ringo's brother-in-law now. Yeah. 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 But incredibly touching songs like "Help Me Get Through the Night." Uh, you he, know, his ballads are great. That's what I meant. I had this. I actually had this record. Uh, so what? And I had yeah. it on cassette. And help me make it through the night. These are beautiful. These are some beautiful ballads on there. Absolutely. Beautiful yeah. songs. And, and <clears throat> the, the personnel he's had on the record, I mean, Don Henley, Glenn Fry, Dan Fogelberg. Yeah, he, worked, Russell, he works with a guy like Joe McCauley. Meisner. 
uh, drummer Joe Vitale, uh, just, yeah. no, a drummer songwriter, but he's on a lot of stuff. Yeah, J.D. Salver. Wow. So Joe Vitale was his drummer. Well, there were three albums from a band called Barnstorm, Barnstormer, which was, you know, it was him, Joe Vitale, and uh, that bass player, Kenny Passarelli. But unfortunately, the record labels labeled the albums as Joe Walsh. But they really were band albums. So if you listen to uh, Smoker, you get the player you get. On that album, he's not singing on every song because it was a band effort. But the, the labels mm. put it as, as, you know, Joe Walsh. Oh, okay. Really good stuff. I mean, if anyone ever says, ooh, Joe Walsh, he's with the Eagles. I, if they haven't heard, I would say listen to the first three albums. Uh, you know, the Barnstormer albums. Those are great albums. And, and, uh, yeah. So, and you know it's a great song, although extremely overplayed. Life's been good. <laughs> oh, I never get tired of that. I yeah, never it, get tired. It's true. I listen to football it, stadiums. Yeah. But as a single, it's about as long as Hotel California, isn't it? Yeah. Or it's longer. It's, longer. it's eight yeah. minutes. And the tempo as a drummer, I've, I've like that song's popped up on my headphones when I'm playing my electric kit. It's really slow. It is yeah. like really slow. It's it's almost hard to play. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah. But you know, the drumming is kind of cool. It's almost little reggae touches, but um. Oh, and also this album, so what, right? Which which is the one I had, where I think he's wearing goggles. He's yeah. wearing like, pilot goggles on the front and a scarf, right? Yep. The, the producer was uh, Lou's neighbor, Bill Simzik. Bill Simzik. Yeah. I got him here. Well, he's tied up in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. Bill Simzik was, you know, he was a big Eagles guy, but he was producing James Gang, so he yeah. was with Joe for early in the beginning. Yeah. He produced Rocky Mountain Way. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's funny. The album that has Life's Been Good, uh, It's but seriously, folks, that was recorded in that hazy time after they did Hotel California, and yeah. they were trying to record the long run. Joe Walsh goes and records an album, It's and it's like that song overshadows the album, but the rest of the songs are freaking great. You know, it's yeah. a really good album. So The, Eagle, the Eagles end up playing uh, Life's Been Good. Yeah, yeah. He, he well, sings, yeah they had to appease Joe. They write... They write uh, Glenn letters, tell them Don's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That's probably the only song that the Henley, uh, you know, corporation allowed to be played by the Eagles. That wasn't an Eagles song, right? They, they played they played Funk 49. Oh, yeah. The, yep. Joe Walsh had a big influence on the band. I saw yeah. I saw Joe Walsh at uh, recently. I saw him on uh, somewhere up on YouTube. They were playing. Uh, it was Jeff Lynn. Danny Harrison and uh, Joe Walsh playing something. Hmm. And wow. of course, Kenny Aronoff was on drums and they had another band off to the side, you know, holding up, you know, playing some acoustics and stuff. But Joe Walsh and Paul and Ringo, of course, and, you know, uh, George's wife, Olivia, was there. And, uh, and Joe Walsh nailed the guitar part on something unbelievable. Huh. And he, you know, he came up, he said, we're, we're proud to be part of the extended Beatle family. And, you know, uh, Jeff Lynn was saying now how, how like when he was young, he somehow he was starting out. He got invited to a to Abbey Road Studios and he watched the Beatles recording. He's like, I, I he said, I'm so chucked about it. You know, whatever, wow. whatever slang he took. But yeah, Joe Walsh is uh, he, he, he's a really good guitar player. You know, yeah. you know, it's a, the thing about me, another thing that amazes me at Joe Walsh is you've got a lot of legendary musicians that drank too much, you know. And Joe Walsh reminds me of Steve Ray Vaughan because I saw Steve Ray Vaughan at Montclair College. And um, 
when he came up on stage, he was staggering. And the first thing I thought is the show's going to be a shit show. But once the music started, he was on. He was on. He played perfectly. Between songs, he was staggering. Joe Walsh, I think, was the same. Like, he had this thing channeling. Like, the music came out. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that's as screwed up as he got. Like, and you know what? Not Eric Clapton couldn't even overcome that. Eric Clapton was horrible when he was really drunk. He couldn't play. But mm. Joe Walsh, I, he always has level that's very high he's a great player yeah well, I, I heard a couple of stories with him and keith moon where they they painted their they got it they came into the restaurant with jeans and they were <laughs> so they painted <laughs> black painted or something black. <laughs> well in the eagles documentary he goes and what happened was that keith moon decided that he liked me <laughs> <laughs> which is dangerous <laughs> and what you know what do you think of hotel california as an album and stuff, you know, the guitar playing, and I, I do, I think it's a great album. I really Me too. Do. I, I consider it, um, it's, I don't know if it's a, a master, it's a, it might be a near rock and roll masterpiece to me. I don't know. <clears throat> um, but I think you know, all the songs are strong. And, uh, but the guitar playing, you know, like I said, the, the production as it was, you know, it's, I think it's a great sounding record, but like I said, it was, it's got that late 70s stamp on it. The cocaine so sound. Yeah, yeah, the cookies. But I also but hope the, that the, the, the guitar playing is great all over from Don Felder and Joe Walsh. But you know, they, they were, I would say, people give them a heart that they say, you know, the Eagles are so soulless. I said, were they, as far as the recordings in that album, were they any less soulless than Steely Dan or Linda Ronstadt, who were huge right. at that time? <laughs> they were, right. I, mean, I mean, as far as the music and the recording and such like that, um, I, I think they've always taken an unfair rap just because of their success, but. Uh, you know what? The Eagles, for me, personally, their ballads are what moved me. And that album had, like, The Last Resort, Wasted Time. Those those albums, those songs give me goosebumps. And yeah. uh, even New Kid in Town, uh, Pretty Maids All in a Row. The, the Grammy song. winning, that song won a Grammy song of the year, I think. Which uh, one? New, New Kid in Town. Yep, great and song. The, but, yep, and then you bounce it. it with the hard rock of Victim of Love, which was a great song. So, yeah, it's a really good album. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I absolutely, I, I, I do think it's a classic. And, you know, at that time, you know, when I came out, I was, you know, I, I was a young drummer. And I'm like, oh, this is, you know, I saw him on TV. I'm like, he was singing. <clears throat> I'm like, well, that, that's pretty cool. That's even so saying that I hope Don Felder still to this day gets royalties like they didn't push it, like, you know, buy him out or something like no, that. He, he got fired. <clears throat> oh, no, he, he gets royalty for everything he probably ever did. You know, he does. He's sued. He's sued yeah. about that. Rightfully so. And he gets his royalties. Yeah, because um, he's out of the corporation. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on one of these nights, his lead vocal on one of these nights is, you know, it's weak. Um, you can tell the other Eagles are all just bolstering. You know, they're, they, it's like they came to his rescue on it. It's just so nondescript. Um, yeah. But, you know, he, like I said, as a backup singer, yeah. Now, when, again, we'll get back to Joe Walsh, when he joined the Eagles and Glenn Fire, he was saying, like, you know, Bernie Ledden. For uh, Joe Walsh, he goes, well, the, the vocals may suffer, but Joe Walsh is a great singer. Yeah, he is. I, I think that doesn't get mentioned a lot either. The guy's got a great range. Yeah, uh, that guy can sing to hit some friggin' high notes. Uh, his his live version of um, "Pretty Maids All in a Row" in some of these Eagle documentaries is really beautiful. It's a beautiful song. In fact, Dylan said that's one of his. Dylan loves that song. Yeah, that's his favorite. One of his favorite songs. It's a great it's song. Pretty, Pretty Maids All in a Row. Yeah. yeah. Um, on the long run, uh, in the city. Joe Walsh wrote that song with this guy. Was it Barry DeVos? The guy's like an old string arranger. He's an old Hollywood legend, you know, but like they must have worked on something together. But when I saw the, the co-write on that, because it's one of the better songs on the long run. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, 
it's, it's like, who is this guy? But he's just like old. It's, it's like having John, um, who's the guy that does the Star Wars movies? John Williams. John Williams. Let's have John Williams co-write a song with a rock and roll guy. It's like, well, that's a weird, strange yeah. fellows, but it's a great song. Well, you know what, Lou, it's, it's funny. You know, you went to high school, Pennsylvania Valley High School, right? And, yep. uh, you know, that church across the street from the high school? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I was forced to go to that church growing up and, um, they would Sunday school, they would hold up albums that you couldn't listen to. Right. They, they, they actually wow. smashed albums. They would smash albums. So one day I didn't know much about the album, but they held up the hotel California. Album. I knew about it. My sister listened to us. What are they going to say about hotel California? And they open up the gatefold sleeve and you got that great picture of them in the lobby of the hotel. Yeah. And my Sunday school teacher points because you have that lady up on. There's a witch overlooking. Wow. Wow. Now, there was a big rumor that that was Anton Levone or whatever. The the Yeah, there was a rumor. But if you look, it's definitely a woman. But when she showed me that, I was like. It's a great album full of beautiful ballads with some mysterious connection. It just made it all that much better to me. I went right to Music Merchant and bought the album. <laughs> so yeah. They didn't actually turn me off of it. I bought the album because yeah, of it. Because of that. Yeah. yeah. And Paul is dead too. So, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> people believe anything. Yeah. Wow. So, and get this. A... Did you know Eddie Rabbit, the country singer, is from New Jersey? Yeah. Yep. Right? Yeah. What's from... his real name? His name is Eddie Rabbit. <laughs> no, it's not. It's like, well, I, yeah, I think it is. No, it's no, not. Uh, what is his real name? It, it might be like a Rabinowitz or something. Or Eddie Rabinowitz. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 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 Give me a second. Hey, Keep talking. Kiki Freeman's a Jewish cowboy. <laughs> his name is Edward Thomas Rabbit. No, that, oh, shit. you're right, Perry. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I thought I, used, I thought I read that was a, that was a nom de pleur. He uh he used to uh <laughs> he used he lived in like East Orange, New Jersey. He used to play in, a, in like above a bar, in Patterson or something. Like you know before he uh before wait, he, wait, wait. I like I like didn't he write a song that Elvis Presley uh, recorded or something? Oh, he wrote he Kentucky Rain. He wrote Kentucky Rain. He wrote Kentucky Rain. Yeah. So, so he likes songs about rain because well I love a rainy night. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he wrote Pure Love. Ronnie Millsap recorded that. Right. Wow. And, and he wrote Every Which Way But Loose. Oh. Bob, did I, he, I don't know that he wrote that. Did, did he, he write that? He, no, it was written by Snuff Garrett. Oh, you got me. Good. Yeah. It, I, he's here, oh, I love that song. That's a great song. What were, what was, what were Ronnie Millsap's big hits? There was um, There's a Stranger in My Home, Someone I Can't See. But he had another big, before that, like mid-70s. What was his? He had a big hit. I had several, I'm sure, but there's one that's. I heard it the other day. Anyway, yeah, I, I, same with Crystal Gale, like you and I. No. Uh, oh, Smoky Mountain Rain. No, more rain. Uh, Stranger in My House. No, well, that's what I was singing before. There's no getting over me. That's the one. There's ain't no getting over me. That's a good, that's a good song. Yeah. But that's uh, also but, I, I uh, Eddie Rabbit was uh, from New Jersey, and then uh, I guess he ended up down south. But he he wrote some great songs. Like I love these songs, "Every Which Way But Loose," and uh, he didn't write that. That was Snuff Garrett. Right, but I, his voice was uh, his voice was the. Uh, Did he sing it? 
He sang it, yeah, from the Clint Eastwood oh. movie. While you're turning me every which way balloon. I didn't know that was Eddie Rabbit. That's Eddie Rabbit, yeah. Love that song because I love that movie. Yep. How about this? How about this? The drum fill. Bat, 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 bat. Every way, every way. It was the late 70s. No, no, right? that's the only thing you can play on that. Yeah. And, and any drummer will hear that and be like, this might be kind of like hackneyed, but that's what you're going to do here. It's just, it makes perfect sense. And I think every drummer worth their salt, whether they play that fill or not, thought about playing that fill if they ever played that song. It just, it has, I, 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 when, I, when I first heard that song, I knew that I knew the drums were going to do that right there. You know, <laughs> it's great. It's, but, yeah. it, it's, it's like going down the Hope Road at night. That song is up there with uh, one of these nights or uh, Take It to the Limit, you know, great song. It yeah. says here, uh, Eddie Rabbit, well, he won a talent concept, a contest when he was a kid. He was given an hour of Saturday night radio showtime, broadcast a live performance from a bar in Patterson, New Jersey. Wow. Yeah. Patterson. And he was signed to 20th Century Records. I wonder, I wonder what the bar was. Was it the Doctor's Cave Strip Bar? It was called Six Steps. Uh, it was called Six Steps Down. Uh, no, that was different. He, Six Steps Down was the club in his hometown. I guess that was in uh, East Orange, New Jersey. Hmm. Do you remember the place we recorded at, Ridge Recorders? In, uh, remember with, with, uh, with Joe DiRigo at Ridge Recorders? That's what it was called, Ridge Recorders? Yeah, but didn't we, didn't we record above the, uh, the infamous Angel Lounge? Yeah, the Angel Lounge in Lodi, New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Two cops, unfortunately, in Lodi got killed, right? Did you know the story, Mark? No. Uh, well, the, the one guy, was it uh, Trentino? The guy that was on... Uh, Death Row in Jersey. What was these two guys were messing around in a bar? The cops that came to investigate, they abducted them, like they killed them. Um, it was a you know a big story in the early '60s. Uh, the two guys, I forgot the one other guy's name. He got killed in New York by the cops. The other guy, Trentino or something. No, Trentino was the guy that he was he was taken alive, but he was on death row for years ever. And the thing was, you know, because of the appeals, the appeals, he ended up getting released into a halfway house. I don't know what happened, but it was a big story in New Jersey, but only because of the fact that the guy, you know, he was supposed to have been executed, you know, millions and millions of times, but he managed to avoid the hangman, so to speak. But in Jersey circles, it was a big deal because they tortured them. They messed around with them, and then they, you know, they, they killed both, both of the cops. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah, but it, it, was a, it was a big story. But uh, Paranormal, there was a recording studio. That was, a, was that... Um, what town was that? Perry? It was on Route 46 in Lodi. Was that Lodi? Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we, we uh, Perry, Tom, and I, as the verbs or whatever we were, we did a recording session above that, a recording studio, uh, with some guy that was uh, real stiff. <laughs> <laughs> real fun to work with there, buddy. Real fun to work with. Oh, my God. I guess he was our Glenn Johns, Perry. He was a musical genius, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we, we bristled at his rules in the studio, you know? Well, I remember telling the guy, I said, why don't you put some reverb on that snare drum? He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, I said, it needs a bigger sound. You know, put, put some reverb on that snare drum. And Perry, that was his, um, that, that, remember that orange? I don't know if it was a Ludwig Vista. He had this, it was a clear acrylic uh, snare drum. But Yeah. 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 But, <clears throat> but anyway, so when I, we put the, snare, the reverb on, he goes, it sounds like Darth Vader. He loved it. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> One more off-ramp on the yeah. Relish podcast. So, so I, one other little side note I want to throw in there because I'm a big fan, of course, of John Fogarty. Remember when he used to play that uh, Rickenbacker guitar? Yeah, yeah, 
you know, he was yeah, he played like on Susie Q and all those before he started using the Les Pauls. I put a spell on you. He that's right. He was it was a Rickenbacker guitar, and he, he after I don't know, let's say it was nineteen seventy one, maybe nineteen seventy one. After a show, he just hands the guitar to a kid in the crowd. Just hands it to him. Goes here you go, and that's it. And that thing was. He, he for 40 years he hadn't seen the guitar and he wrote over where it says Rickenbacker he wrote Acme <laughs> and everyone was like was he pissed off at the Rickenbacker guitar company or whatever no he said he liked like the Wiley Coyote you know like, oh yeah like, the, was, you know, <laughs> the Acme you know, Bomb Company <laughs> yes and that's why he did that and uh, yeah <laughs> so and like uh, he he handed it, just handed it off to some kid. Wow. Well, anyway, 40 years later, his wife tracked it down. And on Christmas morning, she had it by his Christmas tree wrapped up. And he still plays it. He plays it again now. Oh, wow. Like when he's in a casino now, wherever he is, he tells the story about how he got this guitar back and how he wrote Acme on it. And like this is the guitar he played at Woodstock. Wow! Yeah, he played this this Rickenbacker, a good this Rickenbacker three twenty five. It's called. It's a, kind of like the same model John Lennon had. Only, I think uh, John Fogerty's had a little semi hollow. Had you know the little uh, standard Rickenbacker uh, cutaway there. Did John Lennon have the short neck model? Was, yeah, was yeah, a smaller, were, a smaller body. Yeah, they have the shorter. Uh, like 21 frets instead of 24 or something. But I found it interesting that like this guitar, like me being a Credence fan, I know this guitar. I've seen it on so many pictures. He gave it away, just handed it to someone. And 40 years later, his wife tracks it down, or his third wife or second wife or whatever, tracks it down. His wife, Julie, and Christmas morning, there it is. And uh, he couldn't be happier. I'm sure at some point he's probably saying, "Why did I do that? Why did I give it?" <clears throat> well, he was unhappy, I suppose, with the band and the, where they were going. There's probably yeah. maybe at the Mardi Gras time or whatever, you know. Okay, yeah. Was that the last album? Mardi that Gras? was the last album, but I know Tom, like, Tom Fogarty wasn't on it. No, he <laughs> left the band before they did "Sweet Hitchhiker." Okay, they so did an album after John Fogarty left. Hitchhiker. They, wait a second. Did Creedence do an album after Fogarty left? After Tom Fogarty left? Yeah, after they did. Tom, yeah. They oh, did Tom. Album. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, okay. It might have been two records. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I flaked out on you. It might have, I think it was <laughs> Pendulum and maybe Sweet Hitchhike uh, or uh, Mardi Gras after that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The failed Mardi Gras, where, like, like last week you had said that uh, John Fogarty said, I'm not going to help you. Yeah. No, he well, played guitar. He played guitar on, on the uh, songs that Doug Clifford and Stu Cook wrote. But yeah. that's it. But he said in his book, he said, you know, these guys kept complaining. We want to write songs. And so he said, okay, here's your chance. And then he waited and waited. And then they came to him and said, could you help us with our songs? He's like, no. <laughs> you know, and, and you also, write them. <laughs> you know, the big problem was that Stu Cook, uh, the bass player, right? Mm-hmm. He's the one that went to Saul's Ants. When the album with uh, Old Man Down the Road came out, yeah, 
He's the guy. Stu Cook, the bass player from Credence, is the one that says you ought to sue him. That son of a bitch. And yeah. I have that original. Yeah. I have that original pressing. It's safe. That was, and this was part of the reason why at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that Fogarty was on stage with Bruce and Robbie Robertson and people like that, and yeah. not the other two guys. It was, it was business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rough stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like, uh, like, and you said you also said the other day, Mark, that uh, Fogarty wasn't allowed to play. So no, he was absolutely allowed to play his songs. He didn't want to because he would be making money for Saul's aunts. Oh, see, I thought he was those songs. That's yeah. why he didn't want to do it for 10 years. He he, uh, had, well, he could, absolutely. He was the, the writer of the songs. He could play them. He didn't want to make any more money for Saul's aunts. That's the reason why he didn't play them for 10 years. He takes a stand and he has not back down. I, I agree with him on that. Yeah. Yep. yep. He, uh, yep. He held his ground, and uh, he is, I guess he is a righteous individual. Yep. Yeah. Well, if, if it's a principal decision, and like you said, you know, I, I never heard that story about um, Stu Cook either. Yeah, apparently Stu Cook was the one who told him, you want to sue him because, uh, wow. Wow. you know, the old man down the road sounds like, what is it, run through the jungle or something? So, well, so he's, a, he, he's a rat. Well, why do you do that? Because you didn't play on it? Well, yeah. apparently, too, apparently when Credence was first offered the record deal from Fantasy back in 67 or 68, and they had no manager or anything, but Stu Cook's dad was a lawyer. So mm-hmm. they said, well, why don't you have your dad look at it, you know? And apparently we don't know that he, no one knows that he ever did. Yeah. So finally, weeks later, they said, you know, what did your dad say? He said, oh, it's okay, it's okay, okay, just sign it, you know. And, of course, they got burned. And John Fogarty, as the writer, really got burned. Yeah. 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 Oh. Well, can I uh, put something for two minutes in here? Yeah, we're at 85 <laughs> yeah, yeah. minutes. We got, uh, I, you know. You know yeah. all right, so listen, my, my commute to work could be five minutes if I chose to take highways. Route 304 to Route 59, to where I work. But I like, joy of living in Rockland County is there's a back road to everywhere, unlike New Jersey. So I take the back routes, and I go through Bloorville, and I go to Route 303. And every morning when I come up 303, I pass a nondescript body shop building. And I'm, you know, it's 6.30 in the morning. I may not be hungover, but I'm a little tired sometimes, you know. Um, but there's a little building with a, uh, you know, kind of a, would they put those um, plates up, you know, to say this is a uh, historical building? Uh, I passed 914 Recording Studios. So you guys know about that. Wow. Yeah. Born to Run. Uh, yeah. I yeah. did. That's where Bruce recorded his first album. That's right. And it feels so good to just drive past that every morning. And I've stopped and I've just looked at that little sign. You know, I've stopped and just stood there. And I look at the building, and I'm like, it's the, the actual building that was used, but of course they gutted it, you know, and everything. And um, just say, it's nice to know that on my commute to work, I, I pass a piece of rock history. Yeah, Once man. a week. Is it on 303, or what, what road is it on? Yeah, Route 303. Okay, yep. uh, that's in Blaville or Suffolk? Blaville. Route 303, Lou, is the road 
that goes down into Northvale. So it's that part of New Jersey. Okay, uh, yeah, right. I've been away, Mark. I've been away so long. I, I, I know. The, now the cuckoo's nest was on three hundred four. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, now so, the other one. So the other one's on three hundred three. Yeah. There you now, go. You where, where, where? I'm trying to using memory or some kind of memory recall. Whereabouts as you're going away from Northvale was nine one four. You go way up from Northville. So you cross over the Jersey border into New York. Right. And you pass, you're almost to where you would hit Route 59. So I think you can remember Route 59. So it's way up yeah. there. Okay. And it's about five minutes south of Route 59. And anyone that lives in, in Rockland for the last 50 years will know it's also about one mile south of the Great Dumps, the dump ground. So uh, okay. you still have <laughs> that's why That's where um, the Orangeburg pub was up there. Yes, now, now it was a little there. south of it, about three miles south of it. Yeah. Okay. Now the dumps when we used to hang out at the pub, we used to like hang out outside out there. I always uh, said it smelled like bird's eye broccoli fanfare boiled in a bag vegetables. When you cut that, when you cut that bag open, it smelled like the Orangeburg dumps. It smells like a big fart. Yeah. Yeah. Broccoli, broccoli <laughs> fanfare. My ass. There you go. <laughs> so, so what do you guys say? That Bruce Springsteen recorded up there? Yeah. He rec- I recorded, uh, I think, the first three albums. Uh, um, Greetings, uh, The yes. Wild, The Innocent, and, of course, Born to Run. Yeah. 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 And it's um, anymore. It's, it's gone. It's gone. I mean, it closed up, and then uh, it turned into something. The building burned, but the, the, the structure was still there. I, I know a guy from Lovell that lives there and told me the whole story. And he was this, this friend of mine at the hospital that I work. He, he actually lived there when Bruce was recording there. So it's kind of neat, you know. Um, and he said, yeah, the building burned. This is the outside walls remain, the inside burned. So it's still the, technically it's the same building, which, you know, in this era of classic recording studios being torn down, it's nice to see that it's still there. And they, the, the, um, the uh, whole push to designate it a historical site. I'm, I really needed to be done. Um, yeah. yeah. Really? And I wonder, Bruce, I wonder who owned that. Oh, uh, the studio. Yeah. Uh, Brooks Arthur from Brooklyn, New York. Wow. And he looked, and he he realized early on he was very smart. He said all this like major money being spent in New York City, I could like open a studio of half hour north of manhattan and he yeah. did it and it, it, it's not just bruce that recorded there dusty springfield recorded course, there yeah. Lawrence, janice and blood sweat and tears melanie recorded there too so yeah. it's like you know a lot of good artists recorded there now i think when uh, bruce recorded that there was problems with the piano I, th- I think they had a sketchy piano they had to do something to it when they were doing born to run okay <clears throat> you think he recorded that album up there yeah yeah really um, now, Born to Run might have been mixed somewhere else, but I believe uh, I th- maybe some of Born to Run was recorded at the Hit Factory or the Record Plant, maybe. Um, that, that we, we could look into that, but I think, I do believe some of Born to Run was recorded at 914. Yeah, um, he did. He, Born to Run was where he was starting to transition into bigger studios, but the first yeah. two albums were recorded there. Yeah. Now, um, Born to Run is a classic, classic rock and roll album of all time. Yes, I consider it. Whether you're, whether you're a Bruce fan or not, I think it definitely it did something that an album of that scope. Well, it, the album has a big scope, but the fact that it, it, it was based regionally in a lot of ways and broke nationally and even more so is a big thing, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's a classic. 
since you since you mentioned that, like, uh, I remember seeing some uh, documentary on Rush, and they were recording at that studio way up there, and like, you know, with the gl- you you see all the winter through the windows. And that everything. was uh, that was a uh, lit studio. Yeah, and that yeah. studio now is just abandoned, and it's, it's just it, it's just hollowed cinder blocks now. Sad. It Sad. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. 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 Um, by the way, uh, yeah. So, Born to Run Lou was recorded at the Record Plant and Nine One Four Studios. Yeah, it was, it was right. recorded both. Yeah. But it did talk about the the legendary uh, the, the 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 impact of the album. My son, who generally gets like. Rolls his eyes when I talk about this album was great. This album was great. He kind of like, oh, dad, stop it. He loves Born to Run. Now he's 24 years old and he, he sees how good an album is. The, the lyrics and everything. Loves yeah. it. Well, I, I was 14 and my sister Karen uh, gave me a, I had a demo copy of it. And she's like, this is uh, this is Bruce Springsteen. He's from, uh, you know, from down our way. And uh, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had to grow on me. Um, but when it when it did, it grew big, you know, it, it, um, yeah, it, yeah. it definitely grafted itself onto me. But uh, but it's funny because, you know, the drummer's perspective, <clears throat> Max played. Uh, well, he's not Max is not on the single Born to Run. That's Ernest Carter on the single Born to Run. But Max really? played on there. Yeah. Um, and that's funny because there's a, there's a joke that the break in Born to Run, it's he's a Ernest Carter is a rocker, but he can play a lot of jazz and he did. But that's yeah. a jazz break he does in that beginning part. And there's yep. a funny thing where Max, there's a video of Max going, well, I can't play that. <laughs> you know, it's something. Um, because they've isolated. It's like, it's really weird. It's great. But um, highly unusual. But uh, Max's drumming in that is great. But, you know, the drum sound on that board run I like. It's pretty, it's, it's, very, it's, it's not a great clarity recording, but, you know, the wall of sound that they did. But the drums are very low, very thuddy. But, um. Yeah. Great stuff, you know that that was that record was recorded under a tremendous, tremendous pressure on Bruce Springsteen to to deliver. Um, he had to deliver on that record, and he did. Otherwise, he would have been dropped. He right? would have been dropped. You know, the first two records, you know, you know, there was there was some critical acceptance. You know, they they criticized the rhythm section, and you know, the drummer, uh, Vinny Lopez, in particular, they said the drumming was weak. Um, it's sloppy. It's it's very unfocused. It, it um. It's creative in some way, but when I first heard those two records, I said something just doesn't feel right. Um, you know, I, I said he, he changed his patterns in the middle of a verse. Uh, it just—it it was interesting. It was, it was weird, but not very focused. And for record making, I could see where there was an issue there. Um, yeah, you could see where drummers who can't understand a pop song or something. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ex- well, exactly. You know, yeah, he was the great live club drummer. Yeah, and even Max, you know, when they did "Born to Run," I think the, the, the drumming was influential on me, absolutely. Um, but when it came time to uh, do "Born uh, Dark on the Edge of Town," the follow-up record three years later, there was issues with you know they were t- they couldn't get a drum sound apparently. They were trying to get like a- record. I like darkness. "Born to Run," I I don't know. I just never. But but I what's wrong hear, with like, you? I could hear the Phil Spector <laughs> influence. On Born to Run because it's got it's you pretty got a pretty big wall of sound. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, but I, I actually myself the way I think of it, I think every song is really really good, and I think there's a, there's a wide scope. It, it's it's a big leap uh, from the first two records. It's a huge leap. Um, well, meeting, know, meeting across the river. It's got Ron Carter, the jazz legend, on bass. The Brecker really? Brothers. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that that's Ron Carter on bass on Meeting Across the River. 
and I'm a huge Ron Carter guy. That's it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh, the guy's well, I mean, he's a, he's he's a living. I don't know if he's living now, but he's a legend of of the base of the upright base. You know. But, you know absolutely. But you can't understand unless you've loved and lost like Bruce. That's right. Yeah, I tell you. No, you know, before you, you roll the window up on me, you don't understand. Yeah. Well, well the, guys, dark, we're at darkness. 95 minutes, man. What do you want to do? You want to keep rolling? Darkness was a great record. I always want to say Darkness at the town. It's a very, it's a very song. It's a nice record. moody, uh, yeah. It, yep. Yeah. Now well, the, drum let me beat, say the drum beat that Max is playing on Badlands. Good album cover too. I like that. You know that vacant house. Pretty much, it seems like. You know? And also a young Bruce. Yeah. Well, let me just say one thing. Uh, I know we're running out of time, but Lou, I always thought the drumming on the first two albums were very jazzy, which may not have connected. That I consider it a jazzy, but I'm not a drummer. But I always said, you know, maybe that didn't mix with Bruce so well, you know? Yeah. Well, there was also the fact that, I mean, if you take a song like Kitty's Back, I like the drumming mm -hmm. on it. Like I said, I, it was kind of swingy, kind of jazzy. He wasn't a bad drummer. But I think, in a, like I said, in the studio, and if you go section by section of the songs, like, you know, you got to, like I said, to, to change your rhythm in the middle of a verse is kind of weird. It's erratic. So I, I, I always thought the drumming was erratic. And, you know, Gary Talent being a great bass player. Um, you know, when Max came in, you know, it's funny when Max and Roy Bitten joined at the same time and the ad for Bruce put the ad in after Vinny Lopez that said no junior ginger bakers. <laughs> so, yeah. So when Max came on, he knew exactly what not to do. Um, but the fact that, you know, with, and with Roy Bitten's background being, you know, a Broadway player, I mean, he had the, you know, Border Runs got that cinematic scope to it because I think the songs are very cinematic. Um, oh, yeah. the, the piano actually helped that jungle land. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's a piano song in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, but when they, when they joined the band, apparently I, Karen told me, uh, and for those out there in TV land, my sister Karen, my late sister Karen and Max Weinberg were a couple during that period. Um, but he said to Bruce and, and, and uh, to Roy and Max, he goes, you guys have made this band, you know, what it is supposed to be. And I think there were two of the, like the two highest paid members, you know, apparently uh, this is gossip. You know, there's some pay disparity, I heard. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, but, you uh, know what? I, I always said Bad Out of Hell was a born-to-run wannabe because they, they, they kind of copied absolutely. that sure. dramatic thing, but it and wasn't born-to-run. Max played on it. Yeah, yeah. Know, did, did Roy Bitten play on that? Yes, I, I believe he did. Okay. Yeah. Or Steinman, I would think Steinman played piano. On, or had to, I would think. But uh, but now that that's where he bitten on Dire Street. Bruce, Bruce. Yeah, man. Well, that, like yeah, the guys on Milk Crates and Turntables when I mentioned uh, going to that that giant stadium show and having the frat boys dowsing with beer, I'm like, never again. <laughs> I'm out of here. Never again will I do this. You know. Well, the now, first time I saw first time I saw Bruce, I said, "Why are they all booing him?" I was an idiot. I didn't know what uh, they were doing. <laughs> well, I, I told you that was my first concert. Nah. Yeah, well, no, yeah, I told you. It's, it's the Count Basie Theater now, but it was the Carlton Theater at Red Bank. So that was 1976. I love that theater. That's uh, a great yeah, theater. I, I was only there once, Mark, but uh, that was that was a game changer. That was just like, yeah, this is freaking cool, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you can, can smell pot smoke everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Roy Bitten, Roy Bitten did play piano on uh, Bad Out of Hell. I just confirmed. Yeah. And Dire Straits making movies. That's, that's Mark Knopfler's New York record. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all, all five songs. Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. You're right, Perry. Um, 
Now, Romeo and Juliet's worthy. Actually, Tunnel of Love, you know, it's right. There's five songs, and it's probably a half-hour record, too. Um, it, it, was, it was considered an EP when it came out. Was so, it really? Yeah, yeah. It was never considered a full album. Oh, really? Wow, okay. But it's good. Um, yeah, it's great. Dark Scrape's first two records are great. Mm, I agree. I think they're great records. No, Souls yep. of Swing, yeah, you've, you've heard that a million, million times. But uh, Walk, Wild West End, Water of Love, Lady Rider, Communique, these are some great well, songs. Well, he does, he does his best Bob Dylan singing, too, doesn't he? You know, in, in retrospect, I, I don't think so. I, I thought so at the time. In retrospect, I don't think so. Nope. But I you know so. what, Lou? I always saw that, I always felt that Mark Knopfler was kind of like channeling Bruce Springsteen a lot of times. And you just confirmed it for me, because you know, right. it's like, yeah, yeah, I always felt there was a connection there. Um, Making movies, is, uh, that's his, that's what he was going for. He wanted to sound tougher. Um, uh, Billy Joel did the same thing on Glass Houses. In yeah. They, he put out his rock and roll record. He he wanted he wanted to be like Bruce Springsteen. Oh, no. When, when Billy Joel was Bruce Springsteen. Then he fired his drummer. Right? What's that? He fired his drummer. Who, Billy? Yeah, didn't he? Liberty DeVito, he fired him or something. He never, he never called him back. Wow. Yeah. Well, the thing is with Billy Joel, he had that one song, Matter of Trust, when he had the Telecaster, and he's going, one, yeah. two, that was where he was channeling Springs in. Yes, one, he was. two, three, four. And, yeah. and, 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 and Billy Joel had a guitar? Yeah. yeah he had was a Telecaster. Or was yeah. it a prop, or did he play no, it? No, he played it. Well, he yeah. played it. Now, on, on the Allentown video, he's playing acoustic guitar. That's my, the only Billy Joel song I like is Allentown. I, I like Allentown. That's yeah, a great Pop song, yeah. There's there's some songs in Billy Joel's first record that are really good too. Yeah. Cold Spring Harbor, um, yeah. But on, on um on uh was that Matter of Trust? He's even playing like Bruce because you know Bruce looks like he's sawing his guitar in half sometimes. He's, he's <laughs> yeah. doing that up and down stroke. Yeah. Like oh yeah. What, what, what gauge strings are you using? Twenty. <laughs> Was he punching his chords? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny because um, my brother Anthony goes, uh, he, he coined that term. He goes, he looks like he's sawing his guitar in half. He goes, he goes, he's playing, he called them grab chords. Looks like he's just grabbing the neck at various places. <laughs> you know, I, now, sent, I sent I, you I guys a video. Guys. Yes, you did. Uh, the other day of Roy Orbison, black and white. Friggin' great. And, and yeah, you could great. see T-Bone Burnett was the tall, lanky guy back yeah. then. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen has really become a really good guitar player. He always he, was, Barry. It's not, but it's not flash, but it's style. In other words, he understands the Telecaster and what well, to do with the Telecaster. But before before he became Bruce Springsteen, when he was like just gigging around uh, New Jersey, he was built. known to be like the Eric Clapton Cream type player. He was like had a reputation. Yeah. Mark, yeah. Mark, Mark, he was called the Alvin Lee by the Sea. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, yep. Even though, uh, the guys that played with him early on, even Danny Federici, who was in like Steel Mill and other early bands, he goes, because Bruce was a, he goes a fast rock. He goes, he doesn't play like that anymore because Bruce he found that style, he found that way of writing, and said that guitar playing doesn't work. But um, you've heard his solos, um, "Cover Me," uh, that's yeah. great, Bruce. Yeah. That's great, Bruce guitar, yeah. "Tunnel of Love." Well, how about guitar solo? How about on uh, Warren Zevon's final record? Yeah, oh yeah, Bruce, Bruce is playing it? guitar, and Warren Zevon's like fanning it fan, because he's, Bruce is so hot as a guitar player. You know, Warren's fanning him off with a hat. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> but now on the Roy Orbison video, if you watch the other guys, 
They're all playing with Roy, but when Bruce when Bruce plays, he's confronting Roy. Bruce is a star. I mean, the guy, you know, he's, he's got the man was born for the stage. It really I, lo- I love there's parts of it like uh, like I've seen the whole thing. Yeah. And Bruce just turns to T-Bone Burnett and like, this is great. This is oh, yeah. great. And, and they, you, know, like, and, you can tell. Elvis Costello is doing John Lennon at Shea Stadium at 65. He's playing the keyboard with his elbow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom Waits. Elvis is always back to strumming. Uh, uh, J.D. Souther is there. Yeah. Jackson Brown. And, of course, James Burton. James Burton. Ron Tut on John. Ron Tut. Wow. Was that Ron the drumming was fabulous on that show, by the way. Now, you know, Ron Tut's the drummer on the early Billy Joel records. You had said that to me once. That's time. him on Captain Jack and Piano Man, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's a cool boy. And Roy Orbison was actually playing some good guitar as well. Um, yeah, it, yeah, I, yeah. I forgot. What, what was the song? What, what he, I, I forgot the song, but he took a, James Burton took a solo. Yeah. He Bruce. took a solo. Bruce took a solo. <laughs> yeah. And his voice sounded amazing. But you know something? He wasn't, he was 52 when he did that. He was 52 years old. It seemed yeah. so old. Remember when the Wilburys came out? Like, who's the geezer? Why? They, they, they dusted off Roy. They took Roy Orbison out of his box of dirt, you know, and dusted him off. But he was, <laughs> he was 53 when he died. He was a young yeah, man. Yeah, that's a tragedy, man. Yeah. That's, Don't that's hang out with the heartbreakers. Tragic story. Stay away from the heartbreakers, man. <laughs> well, don't forget, Eddie, Eddie Rabbit was only 56 when he died, too. Was it a heart attack? Lung cancer. Yeah, that was no heart attack. Yeah, like Roy Orbison, like his his didn't his wife die in a house fire or something? His wife and son. Oh my god. Yeah, he knew tragedy, but um, apparently one of Roy's tricks was before he'd do a take, he would drink some Coca Cola. But his voice is haunting. Oh yeah, haunting, absolutely haunting. Well, you know what, guys, we're at 105 minutes. If you can believe, it. I've been I've been away. I've been away. You know. All right. So so let, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm Perry Dudovich, and who are you guys? I'm oh. Lou Colicchio, and I'm Mark Smith, and I gotta like pee out two bottles of Chardonnay. So I gotta... <laughs> oh, Mark. Great. By the way, when you when you clank on your uh, sh- when your wine glass, and you you don't hear it. Because oh, I heard you be empty. <laughs> you're, you're, well, you know what, Lou? Never empty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what, Perry? I heard you pouring your beer tonight, so you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I did it too. Now, guys, uh, <laughs> for our, our listeners, there's also a line of uh, Music Relish podcast swag. There is actually a Music Relish piss bottle, so you don't have to get up. So you can actually attach it. You can speak and enjoy the show without having to get up. Um, there's, also, there's trucker hats. There's uh, uh, tank tops uh, and things like that. So. Um, we are music relish podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we're going to have some swag too coming <laughs> in the future too. Stol- stolen without a gun. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to go on, uh, play our closing theme Asheville Skyline, recorded at Single Wide Studios. Hey, so I love this song. North Carolina. Right. And uh, produced and recorded by Lou Calicchio, acoustic guitar, Perry Dudovich, and uh, <laughs> Mark Smith <laughs> plays the Stratocaster. Yes, Smitty. All yeah, right. Smitty. Uh, and, and, and Perry, it's Colicchio. Colicchio. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so I'm going to say good night and let's just play some here, okay? See All you. right. I hear nothing. Land the plane, Perry. Land the plane. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
I'm gonna fade out on it. Do 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 do. Yeah, crazy. Do 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 do. Barapi paratu. Barapi parata. Do up, do up. Three hundred musicians on a side in the orchestra. Do 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 do. I'm gonna let it ride. Let it ride, guys. This is from what, Lou? 2011? Something like that. Yep. Make sure Lou doesn't sue us for playing this whole song. <laughs> I'm not the law. <laughs> well, you know what? When Mark and I come down, we're going to record a new one. Don't threaten me. Do 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 do. I'm fading out. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Night, right, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>